We are Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm Jeff Wagg, your host, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Thank you very much for listening. This is episode six, and it is our first regular weekly episode. Uh, The first five I kind of uploaded all at once to get the show going. But from now on, you can expect an episode every Wednesday. This time we're going to do some corrections and talk about floors and sunstone mining. And we're going to have a review of Echo Auto. So let's get going. So first, I intend to be a very honest podcast host, and when I mess up, I'm going to tell you about it. And I've messed up twice, so far as I know, in the last five episodes, and if you can add to that number, please uh, let me know via email or whatever the heck other way you can find to contact me. They're all on the website at built2go.com. That's two T's, built2go. The first one I noticed myself, and that is that... I've uh, rearranged the music a bit, and when I was going through the music, I found a piece that I was using for the Tech Talk section that isn't by Simon Wagg. It's actually by an artist who goes by the name Moonheart. It's a public domain piece. I'm not going to get in trouble, but I do want to be honest and say the music I use for the Tech Talk section is, uh, it doesn't actually have a name. It's just called 8-Bit Drum, and uh, it was by an artist who goes by the name of Moonheart. All the rest of the music is by Simon Wagg, a.k.a. Sir Mouge. Just want to set the record straight. Second, I said in episode two that butane freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. My friend Naomi, who happens to be a petrochemical engineer, called me out on that to say it doesn't freeze, it just stops boiling. And since you're burning the gas and not the liquid, it stops working in your stove or heater. So the advice I gave was correct, but my explanation was off by exactly one phase change, and technically one degree Fahrenheit. The correct number is 31 degrees Fahrenheit. Ha! Anyway, my apologies, and thank you, Naomi, for keeping me on the up and up. So let's talk about something that is almost the first question everybody asks about van life, (laughs) after the bathroom issue. Which van? Which van should I get? Now, if there was ever a distinctive van of van life, that would be the Mercedes Sprinter. Uh, That seems to be the default van, the one that people think of. And there's a good reason for that, because um, they are huge. And they've been around a while. They were the first Euro-style van to make it over to the U.S. And they used to be marked um, or badged under the names Dodge, Freightliner, and Mercedes. But they were always made by Mercedes, and these days, the only ones you can get say Mercedes on them. But there's other vans. I mean, in other parts of the world, they have a lot more vans than we do in the U.S., but I'm only going to focus on the U.S. vans here because it's easier, and um, I am just a bit jealous of the U.K. people, and I might start to cry if I talk about all the different vans they have. So how do you choose a van? It seems like a simple question, but it's actually a really, really important one because many, many van life folks have found out too late that they picked the wrong van. So obviously, the very first thing you're going to do before you buy a van is figure out your budget. That's the number one most important thing. You can buy a van for $500. You can buy a van for $50,000. You can buy a pre-built van that's ready to go that has all your beds and whistles and everything in it for as much as $160,000 or more. I've seen them getting close to $200,000 now for what's technically a Class B RV, but is essentially just a van that's already filled up with your stuff. Obviously, you're going to get different things for those prices. I recommend that you set your budget for the van 
and then spend less than that anticipating repairs. Unless you buy new. I'm not a big fan of buying new vans to turn into camper vans for a bunch of reasons, but the simplest one is that it's not the best value. You will get more value for your money by buying a van that's just a few years old or has more miles on it. And of course, the older it is and the more miles it has, the cheaper it will be. But you are also going to be facing higher potentials of catastrophic events in older vans and vans with more miles. So you have to weigh that too. Uh, I will tell you what I did. I bought a 2014 Nissan NV200 for, I think it was $8,700. Had 111,000 miles on it. I checked the blue book value and that was a decent price for it. And I, it seemed mechanically sound. I drove it off the lot. Everything was fine. I test drove it. I looked at everything. I did not take it to a shop. That, of course, is always a good idea, but it costs money. You have to be willing to spend an hour or two of labor cost in order to have the van properly checked out. But I didn't do that because I'm lazy and I didn't feel like spending the money. That's the bottom line there. Hey, the van was mechanically sound. Um, It did have a couple little problems, but I was able to figure them out. Any vehicle you buy is going to have a couple little problems, even a brand new one. So that didn't disturb me. However, uh, my air conditioner blew up on me. And that costs $1,400. And on an $8,700 van, $1,400 is quite a lot. I mean, suddenly my $8,700 van is now a $10,000 van. And had I looked for a, had I bought a van at $10,000, would I have gotten something better? Mm, Maybe, maybe not. In fact, that was my budget. My budget was $10,000. But I recommend you don't spend your whole budget on the actual purchase of the van. Leave some buffer room for stuff that goes wrong, especially if you're buying older vans. Now, if you're down at the $500 range for vans, oh yeah, you can buy a van for $500 but it's going to have something wrong with it, and it's going to require a repair fairly quickly. So if you're going to buy a $500 van, I would recommend you have at least $2,000 in reserve, at least, and maybe even more than that. Stuff can add up quickly. I mean, these things are vehicles. Vehicles are expensive. You might need a new engine. You might need new brakes. You might need a new transmission. Air conditioner compressors on older vehicles are especially difficult because if they were built before, boy, what was the year? I think it was about 95. So if you have a van that was built before 95, it is going to use a refrigerant called R12 in its air conditioning system, uh, which is great. R12 is, is wonderful, except it was banned in 1995. And if you have a leak, you can't replace it with R12. You have to replace it with another refrigerant, such as R134A. The numbers don't mean anything, but what you should know is that R12 was a better refrigerant than R134A, and you're not going to have as good air conditioning ever again. Why did they replace R12? Because it was eating the ozone. You may have noticed that you don't hear about holes in the ozone anymore. That might be because we banned R12. It might not be. I don't know. At any rate, know that. Old vehicles, air conditioning is a problem. Also, you have the problems of finding parts, and you have the problem of... Especially if you're a young person, you may not realize that engines have changed drastically in the last couple decades. A vehicle made in the 70s required a thing called tune-ups. We don't really do tune-ups on modern vehicles, but back then, you would take your vehicle in at least once a year to do things like change the spark plugs, change the points, which kind of don't exist anymore, change the distributor cap, which also kind of doesn't exist anymore, adjust the carburetor, which also doesn't really exist anymore, etc., etc. So if you learned about cars on your parents' 2010 Camry, 
you're going to have to learn all over again when you get your 1975 E150. The engines have changed a lot. They're not as fuel efficient. You're going to be spending more on gas. It will be difficult to find parts, but eh, that, that is a minor thing. If you get a, a 1975 E150, you're going to be able to find parts for that. There were so many of them, and that model existed for so long that you're not going to have an issue. But if you get all excited about, say, a 1967 Corvair van, yeah, you're going to have some serious problems finding parts for that. Those were not that common. So be smart. Don't fall in love first. Do some research. Make the decision with your head as much as possible. You have some other basic things to consider when you're buying a van. Another one is size. Yes, sprinters. Everyone loves the sprinter. But they are huge. The largest size sprinter. You could literally take my van and stuff it in the back. They're enormous. And for me, living in Chicago... Parking that thing on a city street would be very, very difficult. Now, as it happens, one of my neighbors does have one, so I actually get to see what he goes through. And every night he comes home from work and drives around the block, and then the next block, and then the next block, and sometimes he's parking five or six blocks away because it's the only place he can park. Now, if you live out in the desert southwest, and you've got a ranch on seven acres or whatever, I mean, yeah, sure, get whatever you want, but consider the size. A way to figure out size is to think of this. When you're driving and parking, you want the smallest vehicle possible. When you're stationary, you want the largest vehicle possible. So weigh that out. Are you going to be the kind of person who's going to drive maybe two hours and then camp for a week? Then yeah, you might want to lean towards the bigger vehicle. Or are you going to be driving 12 hours every day and you're going to be just sleeping in the back of the van? In that case, I would recommend you get the smaller van. What about the roof height? Ugh, another controversial question. Everybody with a high top says they would never want to live with a low roof. They want to be able to stand in their vans. Well, sure, why wouldn't you? But I can tell you that having a minivan like I do, where I can't stand up, it isn't that big of a deal. I don't sit back there thinking, oh God, I wish I could stand up. The only time it really becomes an issue is when I'm trying to put on my pants. I have learned ways to do that without standing up, but that is the only thing that's regularly a difficulty. I simply do everything in the van sitting down. I cook sitting down, I wash the dishes sitting down, you know, and everything else I would be sitting down for anyway. You will save money with a low-top roof. You will save gas mileage, you will save money in the initial cost of the vehicle, and you'll be able to do things like maybe fit in car washes if you don't put solar on there, and you'll be able to fit in parking garages, there are a lot of advantages to having a low roof, but the high roof is definitely more comfortable and it gives you more storage options. You can have overhead cabinets, which are a great solution. So there is one thing you can do that's a little tricky, and I've seen people do this. Even Bob Wells did this, Bob Wells of Cheap RV Living uh, YouTube channel. He bought a regular standard van, a Chevy cargo van, and then put a high top on it. After living in it for a while, he decided he wanted a hard top and he added it. So yes, you can start with a smaller van and add a hard top later. It's a bit of work and obviously it costs some money. I think he, I think it cost him about $4,000 if I'm not mistaken, and I very well might be. But hey, it's an option. What about fuel? Everyone thinks, oh, I've got a budget of $10,000, I'm going to get this van. Well, it's not as though you stop paying for the van when you buy it. Every mile you drive that thing, 
is going to cost you money. Depending on how much you drive, that can make a <laughs> make a big difference in what you're going to do. My van gets about 25 miles a gallon. It's actually a little bit less than that now that I put on the solar panels, um, which compared to a car isn't great, but compared to a regular size van is pretty darn good. I am getting a full 10 miles a gallon more than some of the bigger vans, and that adds up quick. Do the math on this. See how much money 10 miles a gallon is worth. Think about that. Uh, a normal size van, you're talking 13 to 15 miles per gallon. Littler van like a Transit Connect or an NV200 or a Metris or a Promaster City, not the regular Promaster, 25 and above maybe if you're lucky. There's one case where you may want to trade off gas mileage, and that is if you want to go off-road. If you want a four-wheel drive van, you're going to pay a premium for the vehicle, and you're going to continually pay a premium for gas mileage, tires, and maintenance. All those things cost more. But you're going to be able to go to some amazing places. Your potential for taking the van somewhere increases drastically, especially if you want solitude. How much is that worth to you? That's what you have to ask yourself. Now, as far as which model's the most reliable and what's the best van and all that, you'll get all kinds of opinions of, oh, don't ever buy a Ford, they break down all the time, or, oh, Chevys are stupid and primitive, or those Dodges rust and whatever. The truth is, is that in the modern age, vehicles are very, very reliable. The reliability between the different vans, from what I've seen, isn't really all that different. You can have bad vans made by anybody. Uh, there are common problems in the vans. The the Sprinters do tend to have rust problems. The Dodge uh, Promasters do seem to have a weird problem with their headlights. The NV200s have a problem with the rear wheels wearing funny. They've all got something like that. But don't sweat it. Consider other things to buy your van. When I buy my next van, whenever that will be, I am strongly considering the Promaster 1500 longer wheelbase. It's actually the mid-wheelbase. Why? Because it optimizes the things I want to do. It has slightly better gas mileage than other full-size vans. It's front-wheel drive, which also gives it a great turning radius, making it a better city vehicle. It's also wider. I'm six feet tall. The inside of this van is 75 inches wide. Therefore, I can put a sideways bed in there, which is going to save me a ton of space. Also, having driven them, I just like them. And that's where your heart comes in. Not before you buy it, but after. I don't care what kind of a van you buy. You are going to fall in love with it. And once that decision's made, don't look back. That's your van. Everything is going to revolve around that van. Until you decide to buy the next one. Okay, tech talk. Let's talk about a boring but very important topic. Floors. So van floors, uh, if you've never been in a van, van floors are not flat. They are metal, they are, are ribbed for your pleasure, and they often have a mat that covers them. Here are my rules about floors. First off, if you buy a van, especially if it's a used van, you want to take everything out of the back, stripping it down to the metal. The reason is that you don't know what's under there, and you need to familiarize yourself with what's under there and you need to check for problems. A lot of people have built out vans only to find out that there was rust in the floor underneath and they didn't catch it until they'd already built it out and then it's a huge problem. If you peel back the mat and you see rust, you can deal with it a lot more effectively before you build out. So no matter what, always take everything out. 
And then there's this great trick you can do, and I did it with my van. If you have a mat, take it out and realize that it is an exact template of your floor. I took mine and set it up in my basement and used that as like a, a surrogate van. And then I used cardboard boxes to kind of play around with moving furniture. That really, really helped me to understand how my van was going to be built. Keep in mind that the walls of your van are not straight up and down. They're curved and there's bump outs and wheel wells and stuff like that. But still, you get a very good idea. Now, do you want to insulate the floor of your van? Yes, I think you do. There's, there's a couple reasons. One is that uh, you want to insulate as much as you can. You don't want a cold floor in your van necessarily because condensation will happen there and it really has no place to go. So it's just going to sit there and possibly rust. But another reason that somebody pointed out to me that I hadn't realized myself was you have heat coming in through the bottom of your van. What's underneath the floor of the van? Well, it's an exhaust system that is incredibly hot. And in the summer, you're going to notice that. It is going to roast you out in there. So insulation can super help there. Also, you need to make the floor flat. You don't really want to uh, walk on those ribs. What I recommend is you use a good quality poly iso insulation and fill in the ribs with one layer so that the insulation and the ribs are the same layer. Then put another layer of insulation down and then put your mat back. A lot of people take the mats out and throw them out. I don't know why. They usually have a little bit of insulation in them and they're a nice tough barrier that's just going to protect things. So go ahead and throw that mat back in there. And then on top of that, put a piece of plywood. Uh, it can be half inch or even a quarter inch, but with quarter inch, you got to be careful that you support it all around or you can literally step your foot through it. And then once you've got that plywood down, there's always the big question of, do you screw it into the van or not? Because plywood can warp. I had a piece of masonite in the floor of my van before I was finished building. And when summer came, it curled up on the edges. Plywood is less likely to do that, but it will. So the question is, do you screw it down to the floor? A lot of people say no, because they want to minimize the number of holes they have in the floor. Some people say you should glue it down. Uh, my decision was, because my van was older, I wasn't terribly worried about holes in the floor, that I screwed it down. It gave me a nice secure base, I wasn't worried about it sliding about, and I could actually screw other things to it. So, awful lot to talk about with a boring subject like floors, but it's, a, it's important, and it is literally the foundation of your van. Tales from the Road this tale from the road is uh, a little bit of a tale and a little bit of advice or a handy trick that I, I learned. I was actually driving in um, my biggest motorhome I've ever owned. It was a 1989 Wander Lodge SP36 made by Bluebird. This was a 33,000 pound bus, solid steel, an absolute beast with a Cat 3208 diesel pusher engine. I mean, it was amazing. I, I loved this thing. I, I had to sell it because I moved to Vermont, and it was literally too big to get to my house. The bridges couldn't handle the weight. I lived in a very rural area. It was actually rural then. It was Loudoun County, Virginia. It's not so rural now. Whoever owned it before me had installed a musical horn, and it was mostly religious music, which I wasn't too interested in, but I did have this button I could press and play music incredibly loud outside. And I would do that just as I entered the dirt road to let anybody know that, hey, there's this massive vehicle coming and uh, you have heard this before, you know it's me and, you know, make sure the kids aren't in the road and etc. And that was about all I used the horn for. 
in until I, I found out the horn was embarrassing. I felt embarrassed every time I used it. And that turned out to be very useful. So one of the hardest problems anybody has while driving long distances is falling asleep. It's dangerous. It's difficult. It can happen suddenly. It's something you absolutely have to guard against. Drink coffee, take frequent rests. There's the whole list of things you can do. But I found a way to kind of overcome that feeling of sleepiness that involves that horn. And it went like this. I was driving up to some caves. I think they're called Indian Caves by Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I started to feel sleepy. And uh, for whatever silly reason, out there on the interstate, I decided to play the horn. And as I did this, I was passing an 18-wheeler. And the driver of the 18-wheeler gave me this weird look like, what the hell? Meanwhile, this was a pink motorhome. I haven't mentioned that. And it was embarrassing. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what does that guy think? And then I was like, hey, wait, hold on. I'm not sleepy anymore. And it turns out that for whatever physiological reason, it's impossible, at least for me, and I'm guessing for you, to be embarrassed and sleepy at the same time. So you can actually embarrass yourself to overcome sleepiness. And I've tested this many, many times. Uh, ever since I, that day, I discovered that anytime I was feeling sleepy, I could kind of creep up on a car and play the stupid musical horn. Now, I wasn't trying to be scary or obnoxious. I'd try to play a piece of music that was kind of funny, like La Cucaracha, which was on there, or... Uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, or Dixie, depending where I was. Those type of things. And, uh, you know, if anybody looked at me, I would wave at them and let them know it was friendly. I wasn't trying to, like, run them off the road or anything. But it did work. It did keep me awake. And in the years since um, I sold that motorhome in 2000, 2003, wow, it was that long ago, I have tried to find other ways that would replace that very simple button I had that would play that music. One thing you can do... If you want to embarrass yourself while you're driving, it's probably not something you've ever thought that you wanted to do. So if you can get up to another car and sing along with the radio and look over to see if they notice you. And then if they do, just for a moment, you're going to get that rush of, oh, that's embarrassing, and that'll keep you awake. Yes, it sounds crazy, but it worked. It was just one of these interesting things I discovered while driving down the road. So there you go. What do you get if you take J.R.R. Martin, the author of Game of Thrones, and stick him together with a bunch of artists in an old bowling alley? What you get is a place called Meow Wolf. That's just like it sounds. Meow? Meow? Wolf. Arroo, wolf. Meow Wolf. There's a long story about where that name came from. They took this old bowling alley in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and turned it into a wonderland. And part of the joy of this place is that it's a mystery, so I can't tell you too much other than you should definitely go there. It starts out like this. You go into the building and you pay for your ticket, and then you go through a doorway, and you're in this giant space with a full-size house in it. And you go in the house, and you start to see some clues that maybe something isn't quite right. And when you follow those clues to their completion, you end up in some very odd places, such as other planets, and maybe inside an aquarium, and I'm not going to tell you anymore. If you like escape rooms, if you like 
art that's cerebral, definitely check out Meow Wolf. Tons of places to park down in Santa Fe. And they've just built one in Denver, Colorado as well. I haven't been to the one in Denver. I can't tell you if it's the same thing or similar. But at this point, if it says Meow Wolf on it, I'm sold. So check it out. Link in the show notes. Meow Wolf. Definitely a place you want to visit. All right, product review. Let's see. I uh, I bought an Echo Auto. These are $22, uh, yeah, about $20. A little Amazon Alexa devices for your car, and they've just come out not too long ago. And I am addicted to Alexa. I love Alexa. If you don't like smart speakers, this isn't for you. But this thing's great. You just plug it into the cigarette lighter, hook it up to your phone via Bluetooth, and all your Alexa functions are available in the car. It'll even do GPS stuff like navigate for you. But of course, it's only voice. Although it will control Apple Maps and stuff like that. If you've ever seen an Apple TV remote or a Roku remote or something like that, they're just these little little black boxes with a button on them. Hold down the button and you say, um, you know, what time is it? It'll tell you what time it is. What's the weather? All that kind of stuff. You can play games with it. Jeopardy is amazing. It gets its internet from your phone. It's a little bit complicated. It can't use your phone as a speaker, but it can use whatever your phone's hooked up to as a speaker. Apple and Amazon fight. So if you have an iPhone, this is more of a problem than with Android. The way I use mine is I have it in the back of my van because, actually, I've got two. Don't tell anybody, but I have two. I have one up front and one in back. And the one in back is hooked up to a speaker. So you can actually use an aux cord and hook it up to a speaker. And I, you know, I I travel alone. So it's like I have my little friends with me. And, you know, hi, little friend. How's it going? And you can have conversations with it and stuff. So if you like Alexa, get an uh, Echo Auto. They're not expensive. And if uh, you haven't tried Alexa, don't start with this. Get yourself an Echo Dot and play with it at home. See if you like it. But, uh... Echo Auto is definitely worth buying. Link in the show notes. Okay, a resource recommendation. This is another podcast and website called Divine on the Road. Can't say I'm a big fan of that name, but I am a fan of the podcast. The host's name is Sydney, and she's a young woman who lives in a van. She has a transit now, a big transit. She's had many adventures, and her podcast is very frank, and it just tells the story of her life on the road. She's honest. She's had all kinds of interesting experiences. She interviews people. So if you're looking for another podcast to listen to that um, has a bit of a younger voice and is a little bit more hip with the zeitgeist of the van life movement than I am, check out Sydney's podcast. She's mostly Instagram-based, so if you're interested in following her, she is Divine on the Road on Instagram, and her podcast is called Solo Female Hashtag Van Life. So solo female van life. I'll have links in the show notes. It's getting to be hard to find podcasts sometimes uh, because there's so many of them now. But uh, this is a good one. I really have enjoyed listening to her and her adventures. So check it out. Okay, time for some Q&A. A question from an esteemed friend by the name Hal. And no, he will not open your pod bay doors unless you ask him nicely. Many of us have tent camped or RV travel trailered it. What do you see as the big differences between those and van life? And what are the similarities? The reason all of us are doing all of these things is because we want to travel. We want to get out there. Now, there's some exceptions. There are definitely people living like this who have no other choice. But we are all choosing tents and RVs and vans because we want to travel. I would say that we are a 
big community involving all those different ways of travel simply because we all have that wanderlust. But why am I not doing this with a tent? Um, There's a few reasons. Tents are great, but they're not actually all that comfortable. I mean, they can be, but you you don't you have very little control over your environment with a tent. They are definitely the most flexible way to travel. I mean, you can go just about anywhere with a tent. But I have owned many, many different kinds of tents and many, many different kinds of RVs. And I have to say, I prefer the RVs. I have slept in everything from a bush, literally, to a massive three-axle, fifth-wheel trailer. I understand there are differences between this and camping. But I do think we're all part of the same community. So with all these options, why choose a van? Well, one is cost. If you look at the price of a brand new Class B RV, and a Class B is a van-based RV, they start at $75,000 and up. And the used prices are quite high because these things are super popular right now. You can take them into cities, you can go up mountain roads, you can do all this stuff. So uh, they're also a heck of a lot better on gas. But who can afford that? Who wants to spend $75,000 on a vehicle? I mean, some people can, and sure, if you can, go for it. But for the rest of us, why not get a used van and build it out? And so that's where this is coming from. Because I have a van, I can create a vehicle that's, number one, invisible in the city. It's really not noticeable. If it were an RV, it would be. Number two, it's exactly what I want. I built this based on what I wanted out of a van. There's things in there that are unusual because I want them to be there. And there aren't things in there that are normal because I don't need them. That's a huge, huge thing. So I would say the two big differences are, one, the ability to stealth, and two, the ability to make it exactly what you want. Thank you very much for listening. This has been episode six. Next time on episode seven, we will have a discussion about loneliness. And for Tech Talk, we'll talk about inverters and why maybe you shouldn't have them. Uh, A great place to visit where you can mine for sunstones. And we'll do a review of stick-on window reflectors. Never-ending excitement here. Thanks again to Simon Wagg for producing all the music, except for that one piece. And we will see you next time. Have a good one.